Today I'm here with Taylor Swolf. She's the chief executive artist of Little Hippie. It's a fun collection of clothing for the whole entire family. She's an entrepreneur, an artist, explorer, an adventurer, and a super creative woman. She's also an illustrator whose work has been licensed by the Grateful Dead since 2004. Four. She makes amazing art, and I'm really excited to sit down and talk to her about running a business. Hi, thanks Hi. for having me. Thanks, this is so great. I'm so excited that we finally did it. Yeah, totally. It um, took a while. It took a while, right? So my podcast starts out with me asking questions about dreams. So as a kid, what was your dream? I wanted to be a writer. My first dream, I had a teacher in third grade who really turned me on to writing and reading. And I always loved books before that, but she got me into journaling and I started writing in third grade and um, I wanted to be a writer all the way until I graduated college. So you write a lot. I mean, like I'm friends with you on Facebook too and you post a lot of stuff. I write some stuff. I like to write. I, am, I write more stuff than what you see and I'm working on a bunch of stuff always, you know, parallel. Yeah, I usually kind of write in circles. I'll work on a few different things for a while and circle back on them. and. Um, every now and then one of them gets completed and gets posted. <laughs> it takes a while. <laughs> it, right? It's a process. It's a process. Yeah, and for something that I so love to do and always wanted to do so much of, it's really the hardest thing. I don't know anything that's harder to do. So what age did you start writing? Third grade is when I remember I started writing. My first memory of art is from before that. We moved a lot as a kid. We moved like every two years and we lived in a house uh, in Greenwich, uh, Connecticut when I was in kindergarten and first grade. So I can remember when things happened because we moved so often. I just have to remember where I was when it happened, right? Same with me, I moved around a lot and my memories are framed by my environment. Yeah, right? It's a handy thing. And I moved schools even more than I moved houses. So if I can remember the school, then I can narrow it down usually to a year. So I remember the house that we had in kindergarten and first grade and um, it had a big closet, like a a linen closet, I guess, upstairs, and my mom made it our art closet for my sister and I. I have a sister who's a year younger, and so we had this little closet, and it was, I don't, you know, I don't remember all that well, but I remember it was big enough for our counter and a couple of stools and all of our art supplies, and we could make whatever mess we wanted in there, and she could close the door and <laughs> put us in the closet, <laughs> and uh, we all have really fond memories of that closet. So, I, you know, I'm sure I was creative before that. My family's super creative, and um, but that's my first memory of that fun of making art. So you had all these years in the linen closet, right? And then <laughs> two years, two years in the linen closet. Right? But we also had a huge backyard in that place. We had a big pond behind the house, and uh, it was an old farmhouse. My parents used to fix up old houses, and so I was always around building and creativity. My mom's an interior designer, and she's constantly redoing. And as soon as one room's done, another room, room is being redone. There's never a sense of oh, it's done. It's always just an evolution, constant evolution. So, so yes, my creativity came from being in that environment, being outside, being inside sometimes, just always having things being made around me. And as far as like when I actually got in really into drawing as its own thing, that, that didn't come till later. It wasn't something that, you know, I, I wasn't someone who just like, started drawing as a kid and was really good at it or anything. I had to learn how to do it and I've studied as an adult. I still continue to study, I practice and... Yeah, because um, sometimes you forget. Like I used to be really great in college and hand art and then I moved to the computer. Yeah. And you kind of lose it. So it's a skill that you need to keep on. I actually practicing. went more the opposite direction where I learned how to draw on a computer. And oh. yeah, I mean, I, I did a little bit of drawing in high school, you know, I painted and did art class and stuff, but nothing particularly good. I have a few things I've <laughs> saved that are okay. You know, I started doing design as a necessity. I got really into photography when I graduated college and then I was like, well, I need a business card and I need a website and I need these things. And so I took a class at Parsons one January semester in Illustrator, which was like, Illustrator one, you know, <laughs> and I learned the basics and I got a Wacom stylus forever ago. And I drew on a Wacom stylus for 10 years before I had uh, the Cintiq that you know, were ogling when you got here. <laughs> it was amazing, Cintiq, and I was like, oh my God, so this I, is so I cool. had the little one first. And so first I had just a Wacom for 10 years and then I got the small Cintiq and everything changed the day that I got that in, in an instant. Because I had been drawing for 10 years 
looking at a screen with my hand out to the right, not looking at what I was drawing. And then as soon as I had a screen I could draw on and my eyes and my hands were at the same place, everything changed. And then I think somewhere in there I started drawing on paper just because I felt like I should. I should learn how to do it. And sketching really does help me work ideas out. And, and I actually really love to draw on with pencil. I think it's really satisfying. But then I got the big Cintiq. And again, it was two years after I got the small one. Instant change. I mean, you feel like you're on a control panel when you're drawing at the, on that thing. Yeah. And so it's, it's almost too big for me because it's such a sweep across the screen that I, I do get tired, uh, <laughs> physically like, exhausted. Physical. Yeah, and I stand mostly when I'm using it. And it's like, you, if you, God forbid, you're listening to music and you start dancing at the same time. And you're like a magician. It, you're literally like manifesting things with your it hands. It can get interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty fun, but it is physically exhausting. Mm -hmm. So drawing itself, like the traditional medium of drawing is a, is a practice exercise for me. And a lot of times I'll be like, okay, I'm just gonna draw for fun today because I draw so much for work. And inevitably, whatever I draw for fun will end up being used for work later. It might take a while, it might even take a couple years, but like, it'll eventually end up being used. I mean, I like to think that play is a big part of my company. It's at least one of the things that we want to see more of in the world. We need more play, right? Yeah. There's so much work and they don't realize they. Corporations, <laughs> people, whatever this thing that we're trapped in, they don't realize that you need time to not think. Yeah. Because your greatest thoughts happen when you're not thinking. Yeah, yeah right. Those, they call them the shower moments. Yeah, the right? shower moments yeah. where you are exploring and your mind is free and there's no pressure and it can create all these dots mm -hmm. that you won't necessarily be able to create when you're sitting focused in the room and it's not inspiring and you're not walking around and your body is not moving yeah. and circulation is not flowing and yeah. you're just like a machine. <laughs> Connected to the machine too. Connected to the machine. <laughs> yeah. Everybody needs to play and everybody yeah. would be so much happier if there was more playtime. Like, mm -hmm. Which I think is why we have seen such a rising popularity in music festivals, in things like Burning Man, in these places right. that are spaces for adults to explore themselves and explore their brains and their bodies and their connections to other humans and to, to play for a few days, to, to step away from their normal parameters and just be in a space where they can do those things. So you talked about moving around a lot, right? So you mm -hmm. spent a lot of time by yourself as a kid or were you like surrounded in other when you moved around, did you make friends easily? Was that what led you to do art? I would not say that I made friends easily. Um, I was always the new kid, and it was a little bit different than most kids. And I was really hyperly self-conscious of my name at the time, and the fact that I had a name that was different, and that it was a boy's name. And I really wanted to change that. For some reason, that was just the thing that held me back as a kid was the fact that, you know, I had, I don't even have bright red hair, but reddish hair and a unconventional name. And of course, now Taylor is like this crazy popular name for girls, but it was not that case at the time. I love your name. I didn't then. And I was, I was shy to begin with and, you know, kind of into my books and into the stories in my head and all that. So I, I wasn't someone who just like showed up at the new playground and was friends with all the kids. And, but I learned how to make friends because I had to do it so many times. And I learned how to keep in touch with people. More importantly, I learned how to keep in touch with people. And I've always, once someone's in my life and I like them, that's it. Like, there's no, there's no question after that. They're staying in my life until they like, you know, if something happens and I decide I don't like them anymore, that's different. But I don't lose touch with people I care about. And so I, I think that you know, that was one of the big takeaways from, from moving a lot as a kid and, and yeah, having to force myself to socialize in situations because I, what else was I going to do, right? The fact that I started journaling around third grade was probably, by that time I had already been, that was my fourth school, I think, at that point, not counting preschool, kindergarten, first and second, yeah, it was my, so I, I think that there's, there's obviously there's got to be connection there and then moving more after that and I started writing letters to friends and um, 
that was definitely there. And I was always really, like I said a minute ago, like into the stories in my head. I would make up these stories and these kind of fantasy worlds and implant myself. And I, I might just lay there for, uh, who knows, an hour one afternoon and like go into these fantasy worlds and live that reality for that moment. And I don't know that I would have done that if I had had a, you know, a different, like, a, I don't want to say I had an unstable, you know, childhood social life. I just had a constantly changing one. And then when I started being able to really read, like, you know, actual stories, I, you know, the Laura Ingalls Wilder books were like, transported me to that alternate reality. And oh, there were other books like that. And, and yeah, I think that using my imagination was always a part of uh, coping skills. So your coping skills basically led you to create Little Hippie in a weird way, right? You have all these... Yeah, I mean, I wasn't necessarily aware of it at the right. time, but I can see that now. You can see that now. You trace the pattern and you're like, okay, well, I started drawing, I started telling stories, and that mm -hmm. gave me the ability to be able to connect with people, mm -hmm. to be able to follow up, to do marketing, mm -hmm. to utilize my creativity to share something with the world. And that's also your way of connecting with the world, too, because mm -hmm. I bet as an artist you love... Maybe I'm making an assumption, but you know, you love sharing things with the world. You're like, I made this. Look how beautiful. No, I do, of course. I, right. And I, you know, there's uh, people say, especially with social media, like it's never enough. Like you have 75 million followers, and you want 76, right? You, right. If you're creating something, you want more people to see it. And so, yeah, that's definitely something. I don't. I'm not super ego driven in that. I don't have bad days because not enough people saw my stuff or whatever. But I really like to make people smile and you know laugh and just kind of warm their hearts for the day or whatever it is just give them a reaction that just makes them a little bit happier in that moment and so i would love for that to reach as many people as i could with it speaking of reaching people right how mm -hmm. did little hippie start it was an interesting combination of factors i started accidentally it totally snowballed out of something that was not meant to be anything i started going to music festivals to, as a photographer and I did a whole summer going to music festivals as a photographer and I was I wanted to go to grad school and I was really interested in photography and I needed a portfolio and I thought that this would be an interesting story I was not interested in what was going on on stage I wanted to take pictures of the crowd and so I did and I went to 10 festivals that summer and I got press passes to all of them and I was exposed to a world that I had never seen before and I loved it and I didn't want to leave it and it was different than it is now. It was before the first Bonnaroo and Bonnaroo really changed a lot. It was also the summer before 9-11. So at the end of the summer, I went to one more festival than I had planned. I had told myself I was going to do 10, I did the 10. And then I said, well, I'm just going to go to one more. It's just in Massachusetts. It's not that big a deal. I'm just going to go to this one festival. And that's really when like, everything changed. So I went to that festival. And then I met someone at that festival. We had actually met really briefly the weekend before. But we got together at that festival. And he came back to New York with me. And we were in New York on 9-11 together. But he had never been to New York before. We ended up just walking everywhere that day. Like walked all over the city. And just, I just, I don't know. I didn't know what to do, really. I'd been freelance for a year at that point. The city was it was clear the city was going to be a mess for a while. So I just left with him the next day. And I didn't come home for three months. Oh my God. And by the time I did, I had learned how to make and sell things. So I had always learned how to make things, right? I said growing up, I was always around people making things. But I, no one ever taught me how to sell things. And so I learned how to make and sell things. I just kept doing it. You followed your dream. Mm -hmm. And you made it a reality. What advice do you have for people for making it a reality? I was also reading on your website that you started doing Grateful Dead merchandising because you went to a dead show, right? And you had one of their marketers approach you. One of, their, one of the executives, yeah. Yeah, he was out there um, doing kind of two things at the same time, which was patrolling for bootleg merchandise, but he was also scouting for potential licensees. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and I was one of the people, I believe he met a few people that day. This was in California, but I was one of the people that he found and offered his card to. And um, I kind of, I gloss over the story sometimes. I'm like, oh yeah, he just walked up to me, gave me his card. And, but it wasn't quite as simple as that. And 
Um, it took about six months afterwards. I had to put together proposals, send in samples, get some references, you know, get my shit together, basically. To yeah, I mean, it was the closest thing I ever wrote to a business plan. And I wrote a business plan last winter for the first time. But before that, I would say that my Gravelhead licensing proposal was as much of a business plan as I ever had. So, you know, it took, it was about six months from the time I met him till the time I signed. And then, you know, once I signed, there was a lot more work to do after that. So, but as far as your question about what advice would I offer, I think that one of the most important things, if you're going to really go for it, people come up to me all the time, like, oh, I have this idea, what do you think? And I'll challenge the hell out of them because it's really easy to have an idea. It's really hard to make an idea happen. And if a friend of mine can't stand up to me challenging them with a line of questions, then they shouldn't do it, right? I'm going to be their easiest opponent. So my biggest piece of advice is be rock solid in your convictions. Know what you believe in. Know that you are doing this thing. Whatever it is your idea is, know that you're doing it because you can't imagine believing in something else. And you just you have to be unshakable in that. Going back to the theme of coping skills for a minute, Let's not pretend that I don't have days where I doubt everything, right? But I have learned how to talk myself through those days and how to get myself back on track. And I think that that's another pretty important thing to be able to do. So I have those days too, and I think all entrepreneurs have those days where you have that little tiny moment of doubt. Anyone who doesn't is lying. And anyone who doesn't is lying. You know Elon Musk sitting there going like, oh my God, we're going to Mars. Right. Oh my God, I'm building the Mars. Yeah. Mars. Yeah. But then you're like, we're going to Mars. Yeah. I mean, the crazier the idea, the more you go for it, right? The more you go for it. Yeah, you're your own cheerleader at the end of the day. And you have yeah. to motivate others, including a staff. That's a whole nother can of worms, isn't it? Right, that's another can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Because at the end of the day, it's about leading in your agenda. Mm-hmm. And you have to like prep yourself up first and then everybody else. Mm-hmm. So to transition into the next question, mm-hmm. right? Like, what is the hardest thing about running your own business? That's actually a pretty easy one for me. It's It can be super socially alienating. And, you know, it, it can be vastly rewarding on some days, but... I spend a ton of time by myself. And that's not just because I'm running a business, it's because I'm running a creative business. And art is something that tends to be created at home alone. Writing is definitely something that gets done alone. And I think that has definitely been the hardest. In some ways I love, I mean, I definitely love that I have the freedom from a, you know, a job that I have to report to every day, whether there's work to do or not, you know? But um, I think it's easy to fall victim to the myth of self-employment that it's, you're going to have all this freedom. And I can't tell you how many times I've sat out social events because I had work to do. I had an art deadline. Or I had something that had to happen. And uh, that can be really hard to do. But you know what? I bet you all these years traveling and being isolated give you a lot of strength to be able to deal with that mess. Oh, I'm really good at being by myself. Right? Like, like in- incredibly good at it. Yeah. I'm an only child and then I went through moving and all that stuff. And that's what makes me a really good entrepreneur because I can sit in that loneliness and that uncomfortableness and focus and get my work done. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, you can look on Facebook, you can look on Instagram and you can see pictures of people partying and having mm-hmm. a great time. But then you realize I'm working on something and I don't want to be anywhere else. Mm-hmm. It's right here. Mm-hmm. And I would rather not hang out with anyone and work on my projects Mm -hmm. because that's how much I love them and that's how much passion I have for them. But you do need to get out once in a while. I think you have to be so mentally strong. So what is the biggest lesson that running your own business has taught you? Uh, I think it's the same answer really as one of my earlier answers about what's my advice. Mm -hmm. And that's the lesson is again, be rock solid in your convictions. And maybe we can flip this a little bit differently, which is that don't let anyone influence how you feel about yourself. I think that's, that's really the lesson. The other one's not so much a lesson. I don't know. Anyway, so I've learned, I've always been someone who really didn't care that much what other people thought of me, obviously. And I don't want to be like some jerk that just tromps on people. That's not what, where I'm headed with that. I just... 
never was willing to accept another person's judgment of myself. Why would I? That doesn't make any sense. But I see so many people who live their lives in torture because they're worried about what other people think of them. And it, if you do that, you'll never do anything interesting. I mean, you might do something interesting, but you won't do anything that's outrageous. I always tell people that your happiness does not depend on another person. Your happiness is something that only you mm-hmm. own. Mm-hmm. Nobody can make you feel sad. Nobody can make you feel happy. Yes, these things happen to us and they influence us. But at the end, nobody can take your happiness away. Right. Yeah. It's. I mean, I really love we were talking about when you first got here about the four agreements. I think oh, my yes. favorite one is the one about not taking anything personally. It's never about, it's not about you. It's about them. And... You know, it's a fine line, like, between self-righteousness and not being worried about what other people think about you. I think it is very important to hear critique when you need to hear it and to process information from people you respect and trust. But that's the distinction there, is to take that feedback from people who you are confident have your best interests at heart. And I think a lot of people who offer whatever you want to call it, criticism or you know, they might even think it's constructive, but it's not always. They're not really thinking that much about you. They're thinking about themselves. And so I think that's the thing that I have really taken away the most is just being completely independent and having the confidence to believe in myself and to believe in what I'm doing. Can we just talk a little bit more about The Four Agreements by John McGill? Of course. <laughs> that book has changed my life, and I introduce it to everyone in my life, it's like a little gift that I keep on passing. It's a good gift. It's a good gift. So I give it to everyone and I'm like, please read it. And if you want to understand how I operate as a human being, you need to understand this. Uh huh. And my mom gave this book to me and my friends use it. And um, sometimes I try to get other people to understand this book and they just don't understand it because it's so simple. It is, right? And it takes... I struggle with these kinds of books when they they kind of set up their own language. And so you ha- have to start the book by learning all the definitions of their terms mm-hmm. and before you really get into the meat of it. And it's one of those books. So it, at first it can be a little bit... Um, and it requires you to be open. Mm-hmm. So that is the hardest thing. So in order to understand like all the teachings, you have to be open to that Mm -hmm. and if you're not open none of that is going to sink in yeah right what's your favorite of the four being impeccable with your word okay so there are four agreements right be impeccable with your word do your best don't make assumptions and then the fourth one is um never take anything personally never take anything personal yeah so i think when you figure that out especially never taking anything personally because you know as a creative you're so sensitive yeah but as a creative, also, like, I went to art school my whole entire life, so I know how to take criticism, and I know that criticism makes me better. Mm-hmm. So I'm not afraid of it. Mm-hmm. The minute you start worrying about whether everyone likes you or not, like, you're done. You know? You're dead in the water. What are you going to do from there? Right? What about you? What's your favorite? Oh, I, like, I think I like the never take anything personally one. I don't really like them all. They all work together. How do you isolate, really? Right? right? I mean, you can tie it in, don't make assumptions. Well, it's easier to not take things personally when I don't make assumptions, right? And it's always to do your best. Yeah. I like that one a lot. I used that a couple weekends ago. I had a really good friend visiting and we wanted to we wanted to do a little bit more than we were physically capable of. And we we were out all night Friday, um, and then we wanted to go to this really awesome party Saturday night that was up at this mansion in Yonkers and it was a ordeal just to get ourselves off this couch and up to Yonkers and into costume and everything, right? But we were like we got to go to this party, you know, we just have to go to this. <laughs> and so we had set, we had bought the tickets that gave us the early entry and there was extra performances for the early entry and, you know, a glass of champagne waiting for us and the whole thing. We're like, well, we got to leave by, I think we set like a really ridiculously early departure time and we were still here well past it. And finally we were like, oh, we're just, we're doing our best. You know, we're going to get there when we get there. We got there, like, right at the end of the early, you know, window or whatever. And it all ended up being perfectly timed. But we started joking about, like, well, we're just going to do our best. Because what else can we do? What else can you do? What else can we do? You know? What else can you do? You just do your best. But you know what? 
your best varies sometimes yeah. because sometimes you're sick. Yeah. Sometimes you're exhausted. Like I'm like, okay, I just worked a 73 hour week and I'm doing my best. Yeah. But like how, how is my best going to be after working 73 yeah. hour weeks? It's yeah. going to be like a refreshed I mean, I, to go back to your question about like lessons learned I, and this ties in, I think another really important lesson that I've learned through all of this whole, you know, adventure of owning this business is to be forgiving with yourself. And I mean, you're your own worst enemy most of the time. And sometimes you just have to like, just be nice to yourself. Just accept when you can't do all the things and it's okay. You, you know? have to say no. Yeah. You have to say no. I love saying no. I know. It's great, right? Yeah. People are like, do you want to hang out? I'm like, no. Yeah. And they're like, do you want to go to this event? I'm like, no. Because you, you just prioritize yeah. stuff because yeah. you have to focus because you won't get anything done if you say yes all the right. time. Right. But you got to say yes in order to get... Yeah. I think I've found a pretty good balance with the... I like I go out, but I stay in and I make sure that I get keep it pretty balanced. Okay. So my next question is, yeah. how do you juggle creating with marketing and account management? Because this is where... You get to, you have to go to a party. Yeah. You know, it's like another party you need to go to. You have to sit here and you have to do the work. Yeah. You have to do the marketing. So, um, I split my days. So, um, I mean, my routines vary whether I'm home or on the road, but we should like preface with that. But a lot of the socializing I do is business, if not directly business related, it's at least with people that are in my, you know, business sphere or whatever. So I'm able to do some overlapping there. Um, and but as far as the actual like left brain, right brain tasks involved in running a creative business, I just split my day. I don't try to do both at the same time. And I have different workspaces for both. So I usually do the stuff that is less creative during the day, emails, phone calls, accounting, whatever it is. Um, and then I take a break in the afternoon, and if I'm in the city, and I usually head to Equinox, and if I'm not in the city, I'll like, go for a run, go for a swim. If it's, you know, if I'm, I spend a lot of time in Connecticut, I swim there in the water. So, um, but I, I really try to take that break where I go and I do something for my body and I make a good dinner. I don't go out to eat a lot. I try to, you know, cook pretty healthy at home and take that time to think about things. and. So I, I take a pretty solid break. And then when I go back to work afterwards, then I do the creative stuff. So I tend to stay up really late working on creative stuff. I don't start my day super early. And sometimes I find when I, if I do start my day really early, I end up doing too much business and not enough creative. And, you know, it's really easy to say, like, well, the early bird gets the worm. You got to get up. And, but actually, like... Four to six hours of that stuff is enough. I need one shift, you know, and it's, we can't do a whole lot more in one sitting, you know, we, we push ourselves to do it, but it's not ideal. So that's how I try to break it up, like four to six hours on one side of the brain, take a break, four to six hours on the other side of the brain. We have like two shifts. When you're working as a startup yeah. founder, you just do everything. Yeah. You need to figure out a stamina and a way to do that. Yeah, and the creative stuff's hard to do with interruptions, so it's just more of a natural fit for nighttime. Do you have any productivity hacks for when you're traveling on the road? Yeah, I, I can recommend a few things. So first of all, I'm hyper-organized and I would not make it through a single day without that. And that carries over when I'm traveling. I use Basecamp religiously and I can have that on my phone no matter where I am. So that's one thing. But my biggest piece of advice for traveling is you're going to have to make time for work whenever, wherever you can, right? You can't expect that you're going to get these like long, uninterrupted windows of time for work. So you have to start learning how to fit that in. And one thing that I learned pretty early was I'm not a morning person, so I should not be taking 6 a.m. flights. I don't care if they're cheaper. I should not be taking 6 a.m. flights. They're going to wreck me for the rest of the day. I'm going to sleep uncomfortably in an airplane chair, and I'm not going to use that time productively. So I tend to take 4 p.m. flights and work on the plane and be awake and be functional and not look at flights as the time to have an uncomfortable nap and just work it around my, my functional schedule. And I work in the front seat of my car a lot. When I'm traveling on the road with someone, um, usually I have them drive and I have my laptop out. I use my phone as a hotspot and I, I've gotten tons of work done on the road in the front seat of my car. 
I'm very fortunate that I do not get car sick. So I do the same thing. I do that on trains. Uh-huh. Yeah, we're on trains. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so going to Connecticut. Can you believe that Metro North still does not have Wi-Fi in their carts and it's 20 And also, it's really hard to use the hotspot on the train track. It, it does. There's like no signal on your phone on the... Metro North, come on. Let's go. If there was a Wi-Fi car, like... Yeah. If there was a Wi-Fi car, I would pay the five if, bucks to use it. Yeah. It would make so much more yeah. money and they really need to monetize that. I tend to drive to Connecticut rather than take the train now that I live out here so far from Grand Central. I really mostly just drive, but um, I use drive time also either if other, you know, for phone calls, if I can, if there's a conference call or something that I can schedule. I talk to my, the people that work with me a lot when I'm driving. That's a good thing because they're usually more flexible on timing, you know. Mm -hmm. And if not, I, use it, I usually listen to podcasts and like use it to inform myself or sometimes just think. Lots of ideas come when you're driving, you know. And I work in hotel bars a lot. Um, I just, I think really working, just grabbing those, whether it's a half hour or an hour or whatever it is, a lot of times you don't really need that much more. When you're on the road, like you're usually working on something that's, there's a reason you're on the road. So the main thing you're there for isn't in front of the computer. And you might just need a half hour to catch up on some emails or make sure that your account's not overdrawn or whatever it is and put it away. Like, we were so in the habit of spending all day looking at our computer that I think sometimes we look at it longer than we need to. Yeah, you're like hypnotized by this thing. Yeah. Speaking of enjoying fun, which is what we talked about earlier, right? What's your favorite dead song? Um, it's a really hard thing to choose, but I did recently go on record somewhere as saying Sugary was my favorite song, so I feel like I should stick with that. But there's a lot that I like. I love Fire on the Mountain. I love Loose Lucy. Um, it's a little corny, but I love The Women Are Smarter. I like that song, too. I mean, how could you not? <laughs> how could you not, <laughs> how right? could you not like that song? Um, I, I like a lot of the sad ones, the ballads, you know, I He's Gone. and I love Touch of Grey. I know it's like a really like super popular song. Yeah, it's catchy. There's a reason it was a hit. It's easy to like, it's you know. Easy to like. It's and a great anthem, too. It's a great anthem because it turns a really sad day into a really happy yeah. day. Yeah. One of my first favorite dead songs was Sugar, uh, not Sugar Man, uh, Scarlet Begonia. I love, I mean, oh, yeah, I, that's a great Sugar Man is the best. But yeah, same thing. The, the handful of songs that are actually about women, I'm pretty much like them all. They're beautiful, Yeah, right? they're good songs. Like yeah. Sugar Magnolia. Yeah. We can have high times if you don't mind. We yeah. can discover the wonders of nature rolling in the bushes down by the riverside. I'm there. Yeah, let's do that, <laughs> right? I love that it brings so many people together in one place and people can share this really beautiful experience. Yeah, I mean, it's also when you meet someone and you find out that they're into it, you automatically understand something about them. Right? It's such a community. Yeah. I actually just, um, this morning, was at a brunch with uh, about 20 women that um, are all part of this bigger networking group of deadheads. That's so awesome. Yeah. Oh, and that's so great. Some, the women who were there were deadheads to varying degrees, and I talked to a couple of them who weren't, and one girl is connected to the group through her fiancé, who's a huge deadhead, and she was like, yeah, he was gone all summer, I don't even know, and she was like mad that he was out late and stuff, and, and she was like, but I, she said how she envied that he had something he loved so much, mm -hmm. and that when he met other deadheads, he had an instant connection with them, yes. and I said, uh-huh, yep, <laughs> you know, that's, that's a big part of it. Well, you know, this goes back to us feeling like we need to be a part of something. Mm -hmm. Because as a kid, we weren't a part of anything, right? Mm -hmm. And this community brings you in and you're like, mm -hmm. this is cool, I've got a tribe. And like, I would love to figure out a way to bring that sense of feeling and community on a bigger scale for mm -hmm. everyone through art, mm -hmm. through music. Because mm -hmm. that's the only way we can unite the whole entire world and create love and peace and stop fighting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but going back to what you said about the four agreements, you have to be open to it. And I think there's a lot of people who it wouldn't even occur to them to be open to it. But I'm like, how can you not be open to like music and fun and love? When I was in high school, my high school, there, there was an initiative in the town to cut funding for all arts, music, and sports. Just to do away with it entirely. Just teach math. Just I mean... Math. And American history, you know, I mean, and I, I didn't get, they didn't succeed with it, but it had something to do with, you know, who was voting and who was paying taxes and whatever. And, but um, I decided to leave high school early and go to college because it's like, well, I'm not sticking around for this. Because you're a badass. <laughs> this isn't what I want, you know. So, and I'm from a relatively progressive place, you know, like 
imagine the places that don't even have the option to fund. Like, there's nothing to cut because it wasn't there in the first place. It wasn't there in the right? first place. There's a lot of reasons why it would be fun to have for my business to be bigger. There's some things about that that scare me. But one of the things that's always interested me about that is that I would love to be big enough to open up the opportunity to other creators. And to be able to facilitate other, especially young artists, and um, you know, just to be able to give them a place where they're able to create art and have it turn into products. I would love to help you do it if you decide to do that one day. Like whatever you decide, you're like, I am ready, and I'm like, I will help you. I don't know how with one dream or whatever you have. I'd love to help you create that space. We need to create those linen closets. Where people can <laughs> hide and explore, right? And create. Yeah. That's funny. And like maybe we are the moms. Maybe yeah. it's up to the moms to encourage that. Yeah. You know, like the moms of societies. We become those right. people well, to build those closets. I think something really interesting that's about to happen is we're about to have a huge generation of women in their 40s who didn't have kids. And this isn't something that's being talked about a whole lot yet. True. But people stopped having, not stopped having babies, but birth rates started dropping in 2008, which is normal in times of recession. But they didn't come back. And there's, this is happening around the world. Australia, England, America, these places are all, like a couple of things happened. One, you had a generation that came of that age during a very challenging time. And then you also had people who got to a point in their life where they're like, I kind of like my life the way it is, right? So. There's a book that came out this year, and it's on my shelf, and I'm really looking forward to reading it, but it's about how it's called All the Single Ladies, which makes it sound like something really cheesy, but it's about how when there are large groups of women, independent women, um, social change happens. So like the suffrage movement, for example, and like post-World War II, well, post-World War II is a little bit different. I haven't read it yet, so I can't give you any more for details, but... The theory is that if you have a lot of independent women, social change happens. I love that. Yeah. Again? Wait, all the single ladies, I think. And who wrote it? I don't know. You want me to grab it? I'm going to do it. It's in the right other room. Oh <laughs> I gosh. read, there was an extended cut article about it, or maybe it was even just a passage from the book in, I don't know, one of the magazines that I read last year. And you should also look up The Economist, did an amazing job um, talking about the declining birth rates in an article called the strange case of the missing baby and mm. that I that was really really interesting and just explains why this happened and what this what this means so you know that's not to say that some of the women that are kind of on that fence right now of like you know I've got a couple years left I can make this decision or whatever like that there may be a turnaround there but we're about to have a ton of women in their 40s who didn't have kids, who are the most educated women who have ever been, who are the most professionally successful that women have ever been. And that's also you and, and I. Yeah, exactly. And who are the most connected that anyone's ever been, right? Something is going to come of that. Something huge is going to come of that. So this book is called All the Single Ladies, Unmarried Women and the Rise of an Independent Nation. And it is by Simon and Schuster, and the author is Rebecca Traster. Yes, that's the book. <laughs> that is the book. Yeah. I cannot it's wait. It's next on my list. Oh my gosh, this is incredible. Uh, you know, the Dalai Lama has a quote, and he said that the Western women are going to save the world. Yeah? I have not heard yeah. that. The ones who are emancipated enough to yeah. stand up for other women around the world. Yeah. And it's also a lot of them have uh, access to their husband's funds. Mm-hmm. And a lot of them have their own money as well. Mm -hmm. And if they decided to come together, which is through Fundreamer, which is why we built Fundreamer, mm -hmm. it's a place to unite women mm -hmm. and diversity groups to be able to invest in each other to do projects. Because right now, grants that are only $15,000, right, they're not enough to actually be an investment. We had this conversation when I first walked in the door of how there's so many little tiny funds set up that will invest about $15,000 in somebody's project. Yeah, grants. Grants, yeah. right? But you can't live on $15,000, especially if you live in New York, or if you have a family, or if you're actually starting a business. Yeah, $15,000 doesn't do anything for anyone over the age of, what, 23? Right, unless you're like 15 years old, yeah. and you're starting something on Etsy at your house, yeah. this is going to be worthless. Yeah. And that's the truth, because you can't... In order to hire a PR firm, it's going to cost you about $20,000 a month. Yeah. To, if you really want to be like playing on a real level. right, right, to buy supplies, to enter a trade show, trade shows themselves are close to fifteen thousand right. dollars. By the time you pay right. for the booth, oh my 
pay for all the stuff, go stay in the place, you know, if it's in Vegas or wherever it is. It's insane how much it costs to do trade shows. You can't even quote an app on $15,000. You can barely get wireframes yeah, in US right, on that. Right. And a designer, you're not going to launch a product on that. Right. I, I'm not really sure what $15,000 will cover or if it's a right investment. Like if I'm a company yeah. and I'm investing in people, I'm not going to get an investment on that $15,000. It's just going to be a write-off for my company. Yeah, and I think there's like uh, an element of PR to it and that look at these people we're supporting and now we get to put, promote them on our social media so we pick up a few followers from them, they pick up a few from us. I mean, that's all anyone's trying to do really is right. trying to pick up their other people's followers. But in the end, I'm like, wait, there's, the system is broken. It's not... It's well, yeah, and if you really want to talk about like the funding system being broken, I am incredibly frustrated or not frustrated, it doesn't really affect me directly, but disheartened by the fact, no, it does affect me directly. So we've created, through all of the influx of VC that we've seen since the stock market crash and all these bros moved over to that, you know, to FinTech and whatnot, um, we, we've seen this influx of, of uh, investment go into different e-commerce businesses, and we've really pumped up a small handful of them. I don't know why I'm saying we, they, I don't know. So it was totally me, I'm so sorry. It was all me. <laughs> so I had nothing to do with it. Um, but we've seen a handful of companies really get pumped up, right? Because they had a massive influx of capital. And so they were able to build operation centers where they could offer instant shipping and they could offer discounts and they could offer free shipping on orders over whatever or on any order, you know, they could offer all these incentives. We've trained an entire generation between this and fast fashion, which I think is like the scourge of the earth. We've trained an entire generation of consumers to value cheapness over everything else. And it's a false economy. Something like Postmates or what these delivery services, they're, they're not making money. They're being supported by VC. And those cheap prices that at some point are going to have to go up in order for the company to survive have convinced people that that's the price things should be. And so then what happens is that you've got all these people who are enthusiastic about whatever handful of companies, I'm not going to name any names, but those handful of companies get all the customers, they get all the attention, they get all the press, they get all the, everything. And then how many hundreds, thousands, who even knows how many smaller companies suffer for it. And I don't know what the answer to that is, but it's, it's incredibly disheartening. It is, and you know what's funny? I took um, the card here, because I was running late, so I hopped into an Uber. And I was just thinking, wow, what a difference from the time that they launched, mm -hmm. where they were providing a really good service. I was able to call up a nice car and get into a nice car and feel nice getting into this car. Mm -hmm. But now their cars are complete crap. Mm -hmm. So I call a car and I'm getting into like, I don't know what. Mm -hmm. And I'm still You might as well just hail a cab. I might call the well, local car service. Right? Because the whole entire experience of me being able to call a car and have a nice car come in. So that like alleviates my stress of, oh, I'm already running late somewhere. I want to show up in comfort. Yeah. And I want to have consistency back to the Equinox brand. Right? Yeah. Like I want a quality brand if I'm paying for it. Yeah. But here I am paying the same prices and some some broken like car is going to come and pick me up. This is what Uber is now. Yeah, right. I have to get into it. This company is falling apart because it's not providing the same quality of service, which makes me want to go use Lyft. Because mm -hmm. if I'm going to get a crappy car, I just want to pay for a crappier car because mm -hmm. the rates are going to be better, which makes me want to just call local car services again that have like the nice taxi fleet. Right, right. It's about service. Yeah. Because yeah. you're gonna lose well, money. Well, and I think people are not gonna use it anymore. I mean, we've already seen one of the companies I'm not gonna name hit some major obstacles this week, and I think we're about to see that happen for a lot of these companies. A lot of them are just cheap and crappy. I mean, especially the e-retailers. They're the women stuff that's aimed at millennials. Like, the customers don't realize. Like, and I realize this because I work in apparel. Most of that stuff's just coming from the wholesale market in LA. And being resold, and it's not special. No one's a designer who made this stuff, you know. And it's just—it's really boring to me, also. And so I've actually already seen, or I see the pendulum starting to swing back. And I see that what happens with H and M when you buy some dress, you think it's cute, but then you go to a party and someone else is wearing it, right? 
and then it falls apart. So neither of you are wearing it again later. But yeah. people now, and I see this really in the festival world too, and there's such a rise of art and apparel with all the all over printing that's starting to happen. I just started designing all over printing um, dresses and leggings. I'm really excited about. Oh my God, yeah, I can't I'm really wait. excited. I'm so, um, so cute. I was up to like three in the morning last night designing one. Um, that's so cool. Yeah. So so I'm seeing now that people are are swinging back the other way and they want things that are unique that not everyone has and um, that's encouraging. I can talk about this all day long but I'm going to bring it back to okay. a lighter subject <laughs> yeah. because we started out talking about music and this is going to be If you get me on fast fashion it's going to it's going to get dark. So we're both into music, right? Yeah. Um, what was the first tape that you bought with your own money? Cuz I know you worked for your dad growing up too. So yeah. You're, so you're used to working. You know. Yeah. I love working. I love working yeah. too. It's fun, right? Yeah. It's fun to see results. So what was the first tape that you bought with your own money? I actually don't remember that. I remember my first tape. I remember, I still have all of my tapes, by the way. I have literally every single tape I've ever owned. Not so much the case with CDs, because I never got as into CDs. But um, I remember the first handful of tapes that I got. Um, they were mostly soundtracks after I, you saw on my blog, Bob Marley was my first tape I asked for for my 10th birthday after I'd heard it. But um, then I had a whole bunch of soundtracks like The Big Chill, and which I certainly didn't watch the movie at that age and I wouldn't even have understood it if I had. But um, Top Gun, Dirty Dancing. So I was exposed, you know, The Big Chill has a bunch of Creedence Clearwater, which is like one of my all-time favorites. I don't remember what the first tape I bought myself was. I do remember what the very first thing I bought for myself was, which was at least the first thing of significance, um, the first Nintendo. I oh, say Yeah, the very first Nintendo, the gun for Duck Hunt, Super Mario Brothers, the whole thing. And I had this little loft above my bedroom was the attic that my parents had cut a hole in the ceiling above my bed and I could climb up. I had a little three-step ladder. I could climb up from my bed up to the attic when it wasn't either you know, piping hot or freezing cold. Um, I had the Nintendo up there. They had carpeted it for me. And we had, it was like a little sleepover place, right? And we would hang out up there and play Nintendo. And awesome. yeah, so that was my first big independent purchase. When I was in sleepaway camp, uh -huh. I went to uh, Camp Lurwood, uh -huh. and I'm a big sleepaway camper, uh, and I became a camp counselor, too, eventually, because I loved camp so much. I loved camp. It was I the best. Camp. Like, yeah. It was really rough for me for the first few years, because I didn't speak English, and I couldn't make any friends, but then after like that, yeah. like after I, I was like, I love this. I love climbing. I love exploring. Yeah. I love community, and I bought, um, when I was away at camp, we went to like a little town for the day and I bought Appetite for Destruction, which was Guns N' Roses. That oh, I had that too. Thing. Yeah. So I was like, to me, that just blew my mind yeah. because that was like, like rebellion. Oh, totally. Right. So I did that. And then with my first paycheck, I bought myself a pair of Doc Martens because I, I really wanted to be punk rock. So I bought a pair of Docs. Uh -huh. and they were a little big and I still wore them. Yeah. That money let me to buy items of independence to like announce myself to the world. Okay, let's talk about how sexy John Mayer is. Oh, we're just gonna go straight to can that. We, just we can talk about that all day. No, I mean, he's amazing what he's done with Grateful Dead music in the last year. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? No one saw that coming. I did not see that coming. Certainly he had doubters. I don't know how many doubters he has left. I know they're still out there, but I think he converted a lot. I think, honestly, I haven't heard of so many man crushes ever in my life. I've had so many people say to me, well, I don't know what it is, but I just have a man crush on this guy. Like, people are so, they were freaking out over him playing this music. I rolled my eyes. When I first heard it, I literally rolled my eyes. I was like, ugh. And then I was like, wait, 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 this makes sense. He's really, really talented. He's so, he's so talented. And I was and, like, who is going to play the music better than he Well, is? and I think also he has an intellectual curiosity about it and that that's serving him well. And... I mean, that's probably one of the sexiest things. He's just another good-looking guy. There's plenty of good-looking guys out there. But the fact that he's taken a, a really scholarly approach to something that has so many levels of meaning for so many people, he's not just playing it because he knows it's good music. He knows there's more to it than that. I suspect he doesn't know all of it yet, but he's at least got a glimpse, you know? And I'm really curious to see what he continues to do. No one really talks enough about Oteil Burbridge and I feel like we should we should do that for a minute too because as awesome as John Mayer has been for Dead and Company and really for igniting you know fans again Oteil Burbridge is a badass and he's so good he having him up on stage with he's a badass 
He's so good. And the two of them together, it's been really awesome to see them playing together. And I'm really curious to see what that leads to. Right, you need partnerships. That's what yeah. It's like a buddy movie. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I mean, I have no idea what it's like when the two of them are in the room together off stage. <laughs> Hopefully they're buddies, you know? <laughs> Be really sad if they weren't, but it looks oh. like they are. Um, but Otiel is really, really good. He is really good. Yeah. Really and John good. Mayer would not be as good on that stage as he is without him. Right. And, you know, it's really easy to put the spotlight on him because he's been an independent pop star for so long and he's never been in a band before. This is his first band. Other than the John Mayer trio, right. which was him leading, you know, I mean, I can't really speak for him, but he said himself in an interview last year at some point, he said, I'm, I'm in a band for the first time. This is my first band. That's you know? so true, right? And people don't really realize that. Yeah. Like, yeah, totally. Oh, it's so true. And it's a partnership at the end because at the end, your work makes another person look better. Mm -hmm. And then the other person's work makes you look better. And that's what a true partnership is. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of people really like to pick on him because he's made it so easy for himself to be picked on. But he's certainly found a level of redemption in the work that he's done recently. With hindsight being 2020, what would you do differently if you were launching your business today? This is an easy one for me. I would have been a lot smarter about debt. And I, I would have, credit cards specifically, I didn't know anything about it. Keep in mind, I started my business pre-2008. The regulations that are in place now for credit cards weren't at the time. And at one point, I had a bunch of credit cards that all had 29% interest on them. And that was probably one of the worst things that ever happened to me since starting my business. And the even worse part of that is I wasn't getting miles for any of those purchases. I oh. didn't get a credit card that had a mileage. That's the biggest thing. It's one thing to, I mean, you buy so much stuff when you own a business. And I have friends who have been around the world on their miles from their business credit cards, and I have not. And that is without question, the one thing that I would do differently. You know what, that's the one thing I learned too. This year is the year that I paid off all my credit cards and it was such a relief. I bet. And again, I did not sign up for them to get miles because I signed up such a long time ago. Yeah. And throughout the years, starting my businesses, I just accrued and my interest rates were really high too. Yeah. And I don't think it's an, anything that anybody really ever talks about. So mm -mm. I'm actually really grateful. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm actually really grateful uh -huh. <laughs> that we're talking about this because like nobody really talks about credit card debt. No, it's kind of a, it's like a shameful thing, right? <laughs> Let's say if at that age someone had been willing to give me a $15,000 grant, my world wouldn't have been different. But that's, you know. Right. So, at that age. Because at that age, that's where it matters. Yeah, it's exactly. Not, it's not going to do anything for me now. But, right? it, yeah, at that age, it would have mattered, right? I mean, I lived on nothing forever. I had a rent-control apartment uptown, and I, it was tiny, and it was... You know, I mean, I really lived on nothing for a long time, and everything I did was to start a business, but I didn't understand at all what I had gotten myself into with credit cards. Um, I just bought a really great book on debt just to wrap my brain around it. Uh, I went to the bookstore last night because mm -hmm. I went to see Doctor Strange with a bunch of nice. friends, and then I locked myself in a rare bookstore, and I bought about, like... I saw your picture. Yeah, so <laughs> I bought cool. a bunch of books. I bought one on debt that my college teacher actually told me to read in college, and I never did uh -huh. because I was too busy doing things. Right? I was running actually a feminist art magazine. So uh -huh. I was pretty busy. But I didn't think I needed to read that book. And if I read that book, I probably You're would right. not have charged up my credit card right. as much. So I'm reading a lot of different like economics books, which is really interesting because I need it for Fun Dreamer. So my next question is, what advice for building a brand and a community do you have? Having been through all of it, charged up your credit cards, started your business, now you're here. Yeah. What advice? That's the hardest question so far. Save that one for last. Huh? I mean, building an authentic community and a real brand is one of the hardest things you can possibly attempt to do. And I think that, first of all, you have to infuse it with personality. You have to be genuine. You can't flip-flop on what you're promoting just because it's trendy. I've never been a trend chaser. And I really, I believe in classic, and I think that's really important, and reliability, and I think that that gets reflected. I mean, so I started this long before Facebook, 
And Facebook certainly changed things for me, but I feel like I had at least a tiny little community that I was able to get started with. One of my big answers for this, and when I've answered it before, is your community starts within your company, right? And so the people that work with me, that's our initial community, right? And we're, I, I kind of hate when people say, oh, we're like a family, because family's a different thing. And if you start expecting that from your, you know, I hate the word employees also. I really prefer to say people I work with, you know? Um, if you start expecting that from the people you work with, it's, it's a little bit too much pressure, you know, for everyone. And, but community's different than family, right? Community's like, it's chosen family. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't come with as much baggage. And you don't always have to be friends with someone just because they're your family, which happens in family, right? So I think that, you know, we, we have a strong, even though it's a, a little mini community, we, we have a really strong community just amongst ourselves. And um, I don't do most of our social media. I create images for it, but the rest of it's done by the two girls that I work with right now, and they do it together. And one of the reasons for that is because I think it's too exhausting for one person to try to do it every day. And I think that if you're trying to have a conversation with a larger audience, you need to start with a conversation internally. So their conversation becomes our bigger conversation. And I do calls with them usually every Monday, and so that conversation will inform what we're doing next. And so, so that's the answer to your question about how do you build community, right? You start with it internally, and, and if it's authentic, people are gonna pick up on it. We have an incredibly strong Facebook community. Our Facebook page reaches sometimes half a million people a week. We have less than 100,000 followers. I track about 40 other companies. You can do that through the Insights panel on Facebook to see what they have for engagement and you know, how their followers are growing. I have never seen another company that has so few followers with such high engagement that we do. So bad. There's some companies that have great engagement, but they have so many more followers than we do. Right? Because yeah. they have a bigger community, so naturally they're exposed to it. Like, our numbers are really good too, but it's only because they're a little smaller. Yeah. And we know as we grow a little bigger, those numbers are going to fall, but we're still super proud and we want to keep those numbers up mm -hmm. as much as we can as we grow. Because mm -hmm. it's hard and you need a really good community manager to do that. Mm -hmm. You need to be engaged. So the question you asked, how do you build a community and a brand? So we built a community and just because people are talking to each other on our Facebook page, I mean, we'll sometimes post things that get tons of responses and people are talking to each other and it's, I love it, right? That doesn't mean they're buying from us. Right. So you convert that to sales, which is the hardest. God, thing. if only I knew. And part of it is, oh my God, social media is worthless. But you're like, no, it's not. It can't, it can't be worthless. I can see that it's not worthless, but I don't yet. I mean, most of our sales do come from Facebook. I'm not saying that they don't. But the proportion, when you see our reach and our engagement, uh, there's a disconnect, you know? There is, and I think everybody's having the same problem because everybody I talk to across the board is having the same problem. Yeah. A lot of sales come from emails, Yeah. Uh, Facebook shops, yeah. right? Facebook posts, tweets, and stuff like that, but it's really hard to drive direct purchases mm -hmm. from mm -hmm. yeah. social media. It is, and especially when you have this generation of consumers that thinks everything should be cheap, you know, and they go to your site and they're like, wait, they're going to charge me for shipping? Well, yeah, because I got to pay for it. And I got to pay someone to pack the order. And they don't, most consumers don't think about that stuff at all. Most people don't even know where anything is coming from. They don't think about the no. box that's being built. You have to pay for the box. You have to pay to go, like, you know, UPS has to come to your desk yeah. and pick up the box. Or like there are or you have to take it to them or whatever. Right? Yeah. Somebody makes the clothing. Somebody makes the buttons. Yeah. Somebody makes everything. Yeah, totally. Yeah, but the average person I find doesn't think about any of that stuff. And, um... So, I mean, I'm still answering this question. This is an ongoing thing uh, I'm trying to figure out every day. I feel like running a business feels like trying to answer a perpetual riddle. You're just trying to chase this answer and figure out what is it. And it changes all the time. It's one year the answer might be one thing. Then Facebook may turn around and change their algorithm and everything changes, you know. And, right. and yeah, so it's, 
Look at Vine. Vine just went gone. up there. Gone. Yeah. So there are all these people who are huge influencers on Vine that yeah. are like, uh, I put all my eggs in one basket. Totally. Okay, what next? Yeah. And advertisers are probably freaking out too. Yeah, I never put any eggs in the Vine basket, but I sympathize. And I've, you know, we've made a point to diversify on social channels. Facebook's definitely our strongest. But I think another thing about building community too is that like, don't take shortcuts. Don't think, like, I'm going to post this picture on Instagram and I'll use the built-in feature to push it to Twitter and Facebook and I'm done. If you push that picture to Twitter, it doesn't come up as a picture. It comes up as a link. It's garbage. If you push it to Facebook and it's full of hashtags, it's garbage again. Like, each channel has its own language. And it takes a little bit more time to put that post on the different channels in the right language. But And not everything's appropriate for all channels either. And that's that's really important when you're building a social community anyway online. It is. It takes a lot of time. Yeah. Which, when you're a small brand, you don't have it. Yeah. I mean, I devote a lot of resources to it, for sure. Right? So the next question is, what is your dream now that you're an adult? So I still want to write. And I have a couple of things in particular I want to write. And I'm working on that slowly but surely, and hopefully not as slow. Um, but my bigger, broader dream is goes back to what I was saying earlier about how with my art I want to just I want to spread some joy in the world. It can get dark out there, and it gives me hope when I see other people's art that is like that, and and I just want to be a part of that. Yeah, I guess my dream is to really just keep doing what I've been doing, but to be able to do it bigger and better and reach more people with it and offer more opportunities to other people looking for something like this and to provide a bit of a beacon, especially for young people who, much like our experience, found themselves to be a little bit different than their peers. And, you know, we're, we're from Connecticut and New York, and it's easy to find people that are like us here, but... Imagine being like us in the Midwest or in a rural town in Texas or Arkansas, wherever, you know, like there's so many people that are at their serious risk of isolation just for being a little bit different. And so that's something that, you know, without being overreaching, uh, we try to at least be one of those beacons that can connect people to other people or at least let them know they're not the only person that feels that way. I'm branding my weirdo torch yeah. high, <laughs> literally high, super high. And I just hope that other weirdos see this yeah. torch yeah. and we all band together. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's weirdos, maybe it's outliers, right? People who don't really fit in anywhere and people who have a different vision of things mm -hmm. and envision different things and want to help other people. Mm-hmm. And want to give that torch to other people. Yeah, I mean, I think it's weird to say that that makes people different because I suspect there's actually more of those people than we give credit. And that the more people who start looking for those people, the more they're going to find each other. I mean, it's kind of an obvious statement, but it's like, yeah, the more, it's just the way connection works. It's that, that's how it, it picks up momentum. I think we all start out that way. I think we all start out as like creatives and weirdos as kids, right? We all make art, but then somehow along the growth path, yeah, we get cut off from that. Yeah, you either stop it or... And you stop it. Mm -hmm. So the trick is to keep doing that because then you can keep on believing that you can do things that are mm -hmm. outside of society. Mm -hmm. Like if... If Musk, right, my, mm -hmm. my super sexy crush, <laughs> Musk, um, you know, if that outlier was told that he had to become an accountant, yeah, life would be a very different place. Yeah, right. If Zuckerberg was told he had to be a lawyer. Yeah. If he wasn't allowed to explore his creativity. Yeah. Um, the world would be a different place, and the world needs us. Yeah. Because we are the ones that create, and we can't just have a society of passive consumers. We need to be active mm -hmm. creators. Mm -hmm. And you need money in order to create. You need mm -hmm. people to invest in you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think that's going to be my biggest decision going forward is how much of that money do I need slash want? And 
for every bit of it you take, you give up some control. Mm -hmm. And it's tempting to look at some of these people who have been heavily funded in the last handful of years and think, oh, the things I could do with $50 million. But I, it would just, everything would change. You know, even $10 million, whatever it is, whatever amount of money, could be, you know, half a million dollars. Everything's going to change. And I think about that from both sides of it, and I think, well, how great would it be to have that kind of funding and be able to put the people in place that really know how to do something with this and get it to that larger audience. And then I think also about how awesome it is being totally independent and having my creative freedom. And uh, this is a decision that I will have to make at some point, and it's probably going to be the biggest one I ever make. And I'm by no means rushing into it, nor doing it haphazardly. And have looked at it from both sides for a while now. And I think there's a compromise in there somewhere. Um, and it's exciting, you know, but uh, I keep trying to do as much as I can with as little as I can, because that's how you retain control. Right. And you, know? you also open up your channels to be able to work with more people. So mm -hmm. That's how you grow your business. Mm -hmm. right? Like, I'm sure you probably have like a ton of partnerships that you're working on. Cause you know, you have a lot of things happening. Yeah. So it's just about aligning yourself with people who want to work with you and see your vision and want yeah. to put more money into creating really great things. Yeah. And you might be not investing, but it's maybe about partnering with brands mm -hmm. that love your vision and want to see their brands grow as well. We haven't done a lot of brand partnerships specifically, but we are right now working on some new licensing opportunities. And um, it did have a really... Uh, encouraging meeting with someone who manages a portfolio of licenses that we'll probably be pursuing here. And um, the other day, and it was the morning after the election, which is all we're going to say about that, but he really surprised me, impressed me by the fact that he appreciated, he said he had enough people who were pitching him to get him into Target or Walmart or Sears or wherever, and that he appreciated that I was a boutique business. He appreciated that I was woman-owned and that I was unique. And that does not come along often. Unfortunately, it just doesn't come along as often as you want. And so that's part of your answer to how do you build a community too, right? Right. Be yourself and be authentic. Yeah, totally. I love you. <laughs> love you too. <laughs> this is so great. This has been such a fun podcast. Yeah. Thank you so much for inviting me into your space and talking to me. My pleasure. And I love your work. Thank you. So you're a badass. Thanks. Thanks for tuning into the show. I hope you enjoyed it. Please share on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Dream Nation Love. It's not Dream Nation Podcast, it's Dream Nation Love because I think my single mission in life is to teach people how to love a little bit more and together we can save the world. So it's Dream Nation Love. Share it with your friends. Have a great day and go out and make the world a better place.